Okay, well that's our official starting time and uh, we have a lot of folks here and we want to try to end on time, so um, let's get going. Uh, first of all, uh, it's fabulous to have so many people here, 140 participants is terrific. I'm Jenny Bradbury with PBS Teachers and it's a huge pleasure tonight to have as my fellow moderator Steve Hargadon from Classroom 2.0 for an interview with John Paltry, the author of Born Digital. Um, John is the Henry N. S. Professor of Law and Vice Dean for Library and Information Resources at Harvard Law School and in addition to co-authoring Born Digital, he also co-authored Access Denied, the Practice and Politics of Internet Filtering. His research and teaching is focused on internet law, intellectual property, and international law. He's a faculty co-director of the Berkman Center for Internet and Society and Society at Harvard University. And he's also the proud parent of two digital natives, which I would guess we'll be hearing about later on tonight. So welcome, John. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, before we get Thanks into so much for having me. So before we get into the, um, the bulk of the interview, I'm going to turn it over to Steve, who is our Illuminate wizard, to give you all um, an orientation to the environment, show you how to use some of the tools and set up your audio wizard. And then we're going to do uh, the poll we've been talking about to find out where everyone is here from tonight. So Steve, take it away. Thanks, Jenny. Welcome, everyone. This is really fun. We love uh, doing this and we love this environment. The first recommendation that I would make is that you uh, go up to the icons at the top of your screen and the third icon in is a select window layout. And with this many people, the chat will seem to fly by very fast. So if you click on the down arrow there, you can select the wide layout and it's a little bit easier to see uh, who's online and what's going on in the chat room. The chat is really fun. Uh, it's a great opportunity to put in links and make connections uh, while you're listening kind of taking notes for everyone else. It does help with this many people if you can kind of stay on topic uh, because we are going to ask you for questions in the chat area and so if, you're, if, um, if those get buried beneath all kinds of other stuff it may be hard for us to find. If you ask a question and we don't get to it and you think that we should have, please repost it. It may just be that it slipped by and was too fast for us. I want to tell you about some of the actual icons that you see on your screen that will make a difference for you. You do have a participants window. You can see who else is here. You have this uh, chat window as well. And uh, you can chat with uh, the group as a whole by posting a message that at the bottom and sending to this room. And you can chat directly to anybody else who's in the room. Do know that those of us who are moderators see all the chats. So it's not fully private when you chat with someone else. Um, there are some fun icons at the bottom of the participant window. I'm going to click on the clapping hand. That's a way of showing approval, expressing our appreciation. Let's all clap for John that he's here. Thank you for being here, John. You can also click on the smiley face. A number of you have clicked on the hand with the up arrow, which is actually different than the clapping hand. That's indicating that you want to raise your hand. We're not going to use that a lot tonight, but we know what you've done and it's not a big deal. I'm going to clear all of those. And uh, there is a hand with little red um, lines. That's the applause hand, and that's different than the one with the green arrow up. You can express confusion as well. Uh, thumbs down. I know we won't have any thumbs down tonight, um, but those emoticons are there for you to use to kind of uh, participate in the experience by indicating your support or interest in something that, that uh, is said. Um, we are sure glad to have you here tonight. Uh, sure hope that you um, are enjoying this environment. And I'm going to pass it um, back to you, Jane. Or why don't I ask about locations? Are we ready for that? Yeah, I think that's great. Okay, so this is a map of the United States. Don't worry, the world map will come up next. But on your whiteboard, you will notice that there is a little wand next to the map with a red dot at the end. And if you click on that wand with a red dot, you can place it where you are located. So if you're in the continental United States, you can put a dot on the map to let us know where you are. Look at that, how much fun. Pretty good coverage. Okay, I'm now going to switch to the world map. And if you would do the same thing here, you click on the little wand with the red dot next to the map and then place yourself on this world map. UK, Hawaii, 
Southeast Asia. One in China? Yeah, one in China. Terrific. Now, it's just fun, just for fun. You don't have to do this, but if you put in where you're from and what the temperature and the weather is, it's often fun for people to find out um, what the circumstances are like uh, around the world as people are listening. And I am going to move this forward. And Jenny, I'll turn it back to you. Great. Thanks, Steve. So just to give you a sense of what we're going to uh, do tonight, we're basically going to take the bulk of the hour to talk with John. And um, we're going to have opportunities for Q&A throughout the presentation. So those of you who um, hear something interesting that you want to respond to, please go ahead and put your question in the chat window. Steve and I will be taking turns collecting those questions and putting them into a Google Doc for John so that he um, is seeing those questions and will have a chance to address as many of them as possible during the hour. And before we wrap up um, for the hour, we're going to show you um, a little bit more about PBS teachers. We're going to show you about our upcoming webinars. Steve has a very interesting webinar coming up as well. And um, then at the very end, we'll have a survey so that we can get feedback from you about what worked and what didn't work tonight so that we can continue to improve these events. So that's what we have on the agenda. Um, I'm going to start right now by asking John to um, give us a, sort of a brief overview of the book and explain to us um, in a nutshell what the book's about and why you decided to write it. Thank you so much, Jenny, and thank you for everyone spending time this evening or whatever time it is on your time uh, being with us. The reason we wrote this book, and I have a co-author named Urs Gasser, who um, was a professor at the University of St. Gallen in Switzerland, really was to try to take the best research about how kids are using new technologies and to try to bring that to bear on um, how we take advantage of their great opportunities associated with it and how we address the big challenges uh, associated with it. And the key really was to write a book for parents and teachers. So this is why I'm particularly excited to be um, part of this PBS Teachers program. The, the, um, the core of what we were trying to do was to um, examine really the myths that people have about this group of young people and um, try to uh, debunk those myths where it made sense to do that and then to, um, to reinforce things where it happens to be true uh, based on the research that we did. Great. Thanks. Um, and since we'll, we'll be spending actually most of the hour looking at more, those myths in more detail, but um, before we go to that, could you tell us a little bit about your methodology? Who did you interview? Did you talk to teachers? Did you talk to digital natives? Where were they? How many of them were there? That, those sorts of things. Absolutely. So we did two things by way of research. We um, did what any uh, self-respecting scholar would, which is to look at what everybody else did uh, and try to make sure that we were not overlooking any of the key data um, from quantitative or qualitative studies. So we spent a lot of time um, reading about things like um, what our colleague Dana Boyd uh, has done, Esther Hargitay from Northwestern, all the wonderful reports that have been done by the Pew Internet and American Life Group. Um, there are lots of equivalents of these studies around the world, as, uh, as you know as well. So we looked at what, for instance, our friends at Oxford had done uh, in the UK through the OXIS survey and uh, similar methodologies. So we did the most comprehensive literature review we could. And then we did our own research based on some questions that we had most on our top of mind. And in essence, we did focus groups and interviews. That was our our modes. It was qualitative in nature. Um, I'm not a social scientist, so I, um, we hired some PhDs who worked with us and came up with a, um, a responsible methodology and had a survey at the front end and then lots of uh, in-depth questions and focus groups. And then um, we would often go back to individual students we met in the focus groups um, for longer interviews uh, to try to drill down on, on further issues. Um, in the course of our uh, structured interviews, we did a lot in the Northeast of the United States. We did a bunch in Europe because um, I had a co-author, Urs Gasser, who was based in Switzerland. Um, we did a bunch in the Gulf, um, based in Bahrain, um, and uh, but which was from uh, people all over the Gulf. And then in East Asia, so we talked to people in Shanghai and Beijing and China, went to North Korea, um, and there was a professor in Japan, in fact, who did a similar kind of parallel um, uh, survey with ours. So our own sample size was not huge. Um, we were trying to really fill in some gaps in uh, the research that we had seen that others had done, 
but of course we're building on the shoulders of giants as you always are as a researcher. Right. Well, I'm sure it was fascinating to talk to all those different populations and hopefully um, maybe later on tonight we can get into a little bit about um, whether there are differences um, between them all. But um, moving forward, I'm going to um, now ask, because we're going to be spending the bulk of the evening talking about digital natives, um, try to get a sense from our participants here about um, how, how sort of comfortable this group is with digital technologies. So um, the first question, we're going to ask um, these in order. And if you could just use the green check mark to answer yes and the red X to answer no, this will be an informal quick poll to get a sense of um, how native some of our participants are. So the first question is, do you write and post original text online using a blog, wiki, Twitter, or other publishing tool? Jenny, do you want me to, to show the results? when we're done with each question? Sure, that'd be great. So, so you like call, the, you call the time and I'll show the results. Okay. All right, let's do the results on this one. Okay, so then let's move on to the next one down. Um, Folks out there, do you create and post images, video, audio, and other forms of multimedia online? All right, Steve, you want to show the results on this one? It's interesting. So even more people are posting multimedia than writing. Um, okay, so then the next question, do you belong to a social network? So the check marks are the green check mark at the top of the screen and the red X at the top of the screen. Great. So let's see the results on that one. Okay, so just over half. Uh, the next question, do you participate in virtual worlds, like Second Life or something of that sort? Interesting. So many fewer people doing the virtual worlds. Okay, how about online games? Okay, great. And then last, have you searched for yourself on Google, People, or some other search engine? Wow, so that one's quite high as well. Okay, great. Well, that was really interesting. Thanks for participating in that. Um, I'm going to turn it over to Steve now um, to uh, talk with John a little bit about um, digital natives, how they're defined, how maybe they compare to our audience group here, um, and then to look at myth one, which is uh, um, that digital natives are a generation. So Steve, take it away. So John, uh, did that, uh, does that poll give us a little bit of a segue here for talking about this distinction between a generation and a, and a population? Uh, and if so, would you kind of help us to understand why this distinction is important? Sure, of course. And, and the poll is illuminating, as, as always, no pun intended. Um, 
the uh, one thing that we wanted to be very clear about as we went through this research was um, to examine whether it's true that young people all use technology in advanced ways and older people don't, which seems to me, um, of course, unlikely to be true, and it turns out not to be. Um, what we wanted to do um, in uh, the sort of at the outset was to take this term digital natives, which is uncomfortable for some people for a variety of reasons, um, and to try to reclaim it in a way. So um, we tried to figure out what's a good definition for somebody who truly was born digital. Um, and we use three attributes as a, uh, at, at the end of the day. One is that born after 1980. The reason for this uh, distinction really was that it was after the advent of social technology, so bulletin board systems and so forth, um, so they didn't know a world before that. Um, secondly, that they have access to the technology. So we bear in mind there are about 1 billion out of 6.6 .6 billion people on the planet who have access to the technologies. So that's crucial. Um, and then last, that they have skills to use those technologies. And I think this is, um, in a way, the punchline of a lot of the research in this area, which is there are, especially in, in rich countries like the United States, um, virtually everyone has access to either a cell phone or they could get, um, get online at a library or at a school. There's not that much of a uh, digital divide in terms of accessing uh, the technology in some fashion. Where we do see a big distinction is that there are some kids who are much less skilled than other kids uh, at using it. And my colleague Esther Hargitay um, has done a fair amount of study on this. And her, her data and, and others show that it breaks down on socioeconomic lines by and large that um, uh, especially if your parents have higher rates of education, you're much more likely to have more sophisticated skills in using these technologies. And I think that's a very important uh, important factor. So we really said um, at the end of the day, it's not a generation but a population of young people who use technology in these distinctive ways. And uh, we also you know, highlight the fact that there are many people on Illuminate right now of the 150 or so uh, teachers in this um, in the session who use technologies just as um, in just as sophisticated ways as many of the young people um, uh, do. So it's not that uh, that there aren't older people who are in fact doing very exciting things using technology in the ways that young people are as well. John, is one of the danger for educators that if we think of the term digital natives as as being um, more accurate maybe than it is that we are not looking at specific needs of students who, who wouldn't qualify necessarily, although they were born after 1980? Um, sure, I think that's right. So I mean, any of these distinctions are, are fairly arbitrary. Um, uh, but I think it, it, you know, our, our, our goal here was to, um, uh, to try to have, you know, determine a class of people that we could talk about in, in distinctive ways. Um, but you know, I think, again, there are people who are on the other side of the participation gap who were born um, much later and I think who will use technology in different ways. Um, and, and again, there are many of us who were there when the um, online uh, social world emerged who were digital settlers and who, again, may use the technology in just as sophisticated ways as, as younger people. So that was the first myth that we wanted to, to focus on. Are there any questions from the audience about this particular principle? Jenny, did you see any or should we move on? Well, I just saw some interesting comments in the chat about um, it really being a state of mind as opposed to um, an age distinction or, or something like that. And um, you know, I think that speaks to the fact that a lot of our participants tonight are a lot more native or at least a lot more comfortable with these technologies than, um, than they're sometimes given credit for, as John said. So um, let's go ahead and look at the second myth, which I think is one that we'll have a lot to talk about. Um, and this myth is that digital natives are more endangered. Um, this is obviously a very pervasive myth. myth. You hear a lot about cyber predators and um, you know, kids being um, exposed to inappropriate content. And um, certainly a lot of school districts have imposed uh, policies that are designed to protect kids at all costs which often means um, limiting access to some really exciting technology tools. So John, if you could start us off by telling us what you found in regard to this, to this um, myth. Was it is it truly a myth? Um, when, are parts of it uh, true and parts of it not? 
I think as with most things, parts of it are true and parts of it are not. And uh, as you as you teed it up, there's no doubt that um, there are safety issues associated with kids going online, and there's no doubt there's a lot of work for parents and teachers and mentors and kids themselves to do to keep kids safer. Um, separate from the book, or after the book, actually, um, I spent the last year chairing the Internet Safety Technical Task Force, which was a year-long effort. Um, it was 29 companies and uh, child safety advocates and others, including MySpace and Facebook and Google and um, National Coalition for Missing Exploited Children and so forth, um, working to identify what the real risks are facing kids and to identify whether technologies in particular could help um, help this. And part of that was a very, very extensive review of the literature of the real uh, risks that kids face. And um, the thing that we had been asked to look at, particularly by the 49 attorneys general who set up this task force, was uh, whether or not sexual predation was something that we could help address through technologies. Second of all, um, uh, access to unwanted pornography in particular, is that something we could sort through technologies and so forth. It turns out that uh, it is the case that um, young people can um, meet somebody online in a social network or otherwise and have that person then lure them into the offline world and do something terrible to them. It's an awful, awful crime and a parent's worst nightmare. Um, it turns out that, uh, uh, though, that it's not um, worse off than, um, uh, than we were before uh, the Internet came on the scene. So this, I think, is one of the myths that, that um, we need to look at more carefully, which says, um, if you track, for instance, from 1990 to today, the likelihood overall that a young person um, would in fact uh, be a victim of sexual predation is going down, not up. Um, and the distinction here is that obviously some of the times when uh, the uh, young person meets the person who's going to do them harm, the place they meet is online. So the public park has gone from real space and to, in some cases, uh, online spaces, including social networks. Turns out instant messaging and chat environments are much more likely environments for people to meet uh, sexual predators. It's also um, much more likely the case that kids who are at risk in the offline world are going to um, be harmed in this particular way. So the um, predator, stranger danger um, risk is real, of course, and terrifying. Um, it's not the case that the Internet has made this dramatically worse. Um, second uh, thing that we looked at was um, access to inappropriate content. So one of the concerns over the Internet, of course, has been our kids um, accessing more pornography, uh, more hate speech, and so forth. I think the, um, the key here is that there's um, uh, the ability to access this, clearly um, much easier. You can go and do a Google search on any remotely naughty term and come up on any device with lots of pornography, um, that there is greater access. It doesn't turn out to be the case, though, that wildly more young people are being faced with um, harmful content than, um, than in the past. And of course, in many cases, um, uh, young people are seeking to access it, particularly older males. Um, so on the content one, yes, there's work to be done, and certainly filters um, uh, on home computers and so forth are good ways um, to, uh, for parents to limit what their, their kids get to. Um, there's lots and lots of um, uh, debate as to whether or not filtering makes sense in schools. I have strong feelings on that as well, especially since kids can get around them so easily. Um, uh, but again, this, I wouldn't put this in the crisis proportion zone. Uh, the thing that really popped out of the research that was not uh, really what the attorneys general wanted us to focus on, but which um, was so clear from the data is that the instance of bullying is much greater. So the likelihood that a young person um, will uh, encounter psychological harm uh, done by peers online is going up um, in almost every study we looked at. So um, where the incidence of uh, an adult doing sexual harm based on age deception and so forth um, is not skyrocketing, um, which is good news. Um, the likelihood that something psychologically harming of a young person by another young person uh, is on the increase. So uh, I think this question of how we address bullying in uh, online spaces uh, is an important one. Great. Um, so I mean, I think you know one of the things that that I really like about the book is that it's the chapters are broken down very simply, and so you have a chapter on privacy, a chapter on safety, a chapter on aggressors, which all I think sort of feed into the myth. One of the things that um, that you talk about is sort of the dangers that are um, faced by digital natives because of of copyright laws, and um, and. Part of that is their lack of understanding. Part of that is having a different uh, relationship to content. 
Um, and so I, my question, I guess, is um, since much of education around these issues today seems to focus on helping students and teachers understand the existing regulations, but the, in the book you seem to actually advocate for changing those regulations. Um, I'm wondering if you could speak to that a little bit and um, speak to sort of what educators can do to be part of that conversation. Sure. So, you know, I think it's important to acknowledge the extent to which the law is what it is, and we should encourage our kids to, uh, in fact, be uh, compliant with it. And then, secondly, we should say, okay, but do we want to adjust the law? Because there are good reasons to do that as a normative matter. So, starting with the first one, this is a um, uh, one of the myths that we couldn't debunk, in essence, young people tend to uh, rip off the music that they get on the Internet and not to pay for it. This is clearly something that the recording industry knows uh, for some time and, and that uh, you know Hollywood and the newspapers and others are sort of coming to grips with now. So there's no doubt but that um, young people are in many cases um, getting music inappropriately and, and not paying for it. Um, there's another piece of this which is though the young people have a lot of confusion around the question of what they can do with copyrighted material. This is something um, I'm sure many teachers experience all the time, which is kids are great at creating digital media, remixing, you know, creating profiles, um, using copyrighted work in lots of different ways, and where I think there are real uh, advantages and opportunities here for education. But the copyright law mystifies them, um, and they confuse copyright and plagiarism. Um, they have very little sense of the notion of fair use, which is uh, one of the excuses for uh, uh, the um, possible infringement. And this is an area also where I know teachers are often confused in parents. So um, it's clear to, that, uh, to me that this is an area where we need to um, focus on can we educate um, both kids and, and teachers about the, about the law. I think 200 years ago, you think about it, copyright law didn't apply to um, to most people. It, it applied to people who made maps and charts and books and so forth. Today, copyright law applies to every kid um, and in every class, uh, classroom. So I think it's quite important that we think about education and copyright. Um, uh, and of course, it's in some of the, the federal standards as, as things that schools need to do. In terms of copyright reform, I'm a believer that the copyright law is somewhat out of whack, that um, it's not that kids should be ripping off music, they shouldn't, um, and violating the law um, consistently, but neither do I think we should have a uh, complicated and um, outdated copyright system that makes criminals of our kids. Um, and I think there are, it's a longer discussion of how the legal reform ought to happen, um, but I think, it's, I think it's a very important public policy issue. Agreed. Um, I see a lot of comments in the chat space about um, copyright and plagiarism. Does anyone have a specific question that they'd like to ask John on this issue of um, safety, online safety and endangerment of digital natives? Jenny, okay, I wish Brittany, I could say please, that I called some good questions out from the chat, but they're going by so <laughs> fast. I know, they're going really fast. But I see that Brittany has one. So Brittany, why don't you type it into the chat window, please? While Brittany's typing, a couple of people said they're having trouble making a uh, sending a chat to the whole room. That probably means that you don't have this room selected next to your send button. Click the down arrow and just make sure you select this room, and it will go to everyone in this room. If you're if you're not sending it directly to the whole group. So Brittany's question is: so, Do you see that, John? I do, I do. So Brittany, you, you ask um, uh, thoughts about how to get students to experience remixing in the classroom. It's a great question. In fact, I think it goes to, um, in a way, how we can help teach them about copyright. I have seen in a number of instances that teachers have um, created projects where kids remix some materials in the classroom. And you know, it could be, could be very simple. You could give them uh, a few bits of digital media that um, they put together. So you could have a movie sequence plus an audio sequence um, uh, that somebody else has licensed. Uh, Creative Commons licensing, if you don't know it, is something started um, at my home institution at the Berkman Center. It's spun out as a um, worldwide uh, nonprofit, and they've got a bunch of licenses, and you can search for appropriately licensed material. 
um, and have kids uh, do remixes as an assignment. Um, and one of the things we found was if you put kids in the position of being the creators, they in fact um, uh, act really differently. I think it's an amazing experience to watch kids with this where if they are the ones who are creating something, then they often think very differently about um, the rights associated with it. They um, think about the extent to which they could choose once they get um, these materials. If, let's say they create it entirely on their own, whether they want to um, become rich and sell it to other people so they um, would license it under full copyright, or they want to become famous. They want lots of people to see it and they don't care if they get paid for it, which might be an argument for um, having the Creative Commons uh, licensing on it. Uh, you also get the sense that they think about the inbound rights. They think about other artists who have contributed um, to what they're making. So I'm a huge believer in having them do some remix, whether it's in an ordinary um, uh, classroom experience or in a, um, uh, a class on art or music, um, and then having them think about copyright uh, as part of that. I think it's a it's a great entree to it. Um, one of the other um, questions that went by was uh, about um, uh, the uh, the Gray album and uh, um, the dispute really about when you create something that is a uh, sort of a close knockoff um, of copyrighted works and it becomes itself kind of a cultural um, uh, you know product ultimately. There are a lot of instances like this where it's not permitted under the copyright law in, in, when you push it to uh, a court where the court would say, you know, this was a, a copyright infringement. And yet, on the other hand, it's actually a form of activism. It's a form of um, democratic participation to be doing this, and it's it's meant to be a statement. I think this is a really good way to teach um, the topic of um, civil disobedience as well, where I think there is a big distinction between somebody who simply steals music off of LimeWire and somebody who does a remix that um, itself might be copyright violating uh, on its face but might be done for teaching or learning purposes. So um, it's not to condone any kind of activity, but, um, but I do think it's uh, an, interesting, uh, an interesting problem to teach. Yeah, I agree, and um, I, I really second your um, feeling that getting kids involved in, in creation is, is critical. Um, I'm actually posting in the chat window right now a link that I came across this last week. Um, it's a site that Microsoft created, and it's basically designed to do just that, to give kids a chance to try out making media and then have to make decisions about what types of licenses and rights they want to associate with it. It really puts them in the driver's seat as creators and gives them a sense from that perspective of, of these issues. Um, so, Steve, do you want to move on to Myth 3? Yes, and while we do so, I'm going to give John a compliment. I'm having trouble, not e I'm not even speaking, and I'm having trouble responding to people in the chat room. And there's John doing all this talking and then replying to someone in the chat. So, John, you're a good multitasker. This Thank you. Uh, I, I speak to a lot of educators who are really worried that our youth are going to be significantly less informed and that they're missing something critical by not using the traditional media that, that we have. And somebody actually sent me an article today, and the quote was, social networking sites are doing irrevocable damage to the brains of child users, a top neuroscientist claims. She says that social networking is leading to shortened attention spans and self-centered children. How would you respond to this? So there is absolutely a cultural war that's emerging around this question. Around the time that we put out this book, Born Digital, there was another book called The Dumbest Generation um, that a uh, professor, I think from Emory, uh, Mark Bauerlein wrote. And you know, the premises of the two books really couldn't be all that much different. I think from my perspective, a lot of what's going on is that kids are learning in different ways. Um, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad, but we need to figure out how to take advantage of the great and to curb the the worst excesses on the other side of it. Um, my sense is that there are real challenges for our uh, for our students um, in uh, how they are um, uh, how they are sort of interacting with the information environment. So one example that that I give from the research we asked all kids if they were doing a research project, um, say on a topic like the Spanish American War. That was an example we used. Lou Gehrig's disease. This was another one. We said, so how would you um, go about 
uh, researching that and you know turning in a paper. And the kids we were talking to were age 13 to 22, um, but imagine the high school student just for for simplicity. Um, kids um, would say consistently um, that not that they'd go to the library, that they would um, go to a computer, whether it was their laptop or um, one in the school, and they would go to open a browser and they would go to Google, and it was always Google, no matter where we were. And they would type in Spanish American War, Spanish American War, or Lou Gehrig's disease, and they would then see um, the results that would come up, and they would invariably click on the Wikipedia um, entry for Spanish American War. And it was only at that point that we would see um, the variation in terms of what they did. So um, the least um, sophisticated kids would cut and paste the uh, Wikipedia entry into their uh, report and consider themselves done. They obviously didn't get um, all that much uh, in the way of good grades, but you know they were they, it was efficient. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, there were those kids who uh, wouldn't take anything out of the Wikipedia entry. They would say, "I'm really worried that my classmate was just there two minutes ago and introduced a false fact into it, so I don't believe it at all." Um, and I think there's uh, a fair amount that lies in between those, um, uh, and you know the the extent to which we can teach kids about what um, Wikipedia, just as one example, um, uh, has to offer in terms of a history of you know who wrote what about the discussion pages in in certain instances, and also the fact that on some topics Wikipedia is just terrible. Um, but uh, the act of then thinking through this is one source, and there are many other sources, and how we um, kind of triangulate between them, that seems to me a crucial piece of, of what we teach. Um, so giving them a way to make sense of these new contexts, pick up on different clues, um, learn basic digital media um, skills, I think um, these, are, uh, these are crucial things, and ones that we don't do um, uh, as well as we should right now in, in, in education. Um, one just sort of side note, when I asked all these questions of kids, I would occasionally say, so did you ever think to go to a library? Um, one kid to us uh, said to us, you know, um, no, no, I, no. And then he said, wait, man, actually, wait, I did. I once went to a library on a field trip. So there's so some extent to which the library is, um, uh, for some kids, sort of like a museum. Um, the number of other kids relative to the library would say, we would go to the library if we were assigned to um, uh, quote a book or cite a book. So if teachers said you had to go have a book, they would go and pick it out. Um, in my own experience at, at Harvard Law School, which is um, obviously older kids and, and um, uh, certainly sophisticated students, um, our library is packed. The library is um, every seat taken, so much so that we in fact have to um, uh, keep some kids uh, from other parts of campus out of the library during exam times. Um, they're not pulling books off the shelves, but they are in there and learning, um, and it's just uh, in different ways. Um, one final note on it, there's a very active discussion among neuroscientists about whether or not um, brains are in fact being rewired. There's a book called iBrain, which is um, out there making one argument that, that yes, there's some rewiring going on in terms of how kids learn. Um, my instinct is it is so different in terms of uh, how kids are processing information that something must be going on in that way, but I'm no uh, no neuroscientist. John, I love the process, the multi-step process you described of grazing, deep dive, and feedback loop, because I think I recognized my own mm -hmm. practice there. Would you, would you go on to take a minute and just describe that? Sure. I th you know, I think one of the other things in this context of how kids get information um, that's different is think about getting news um, and, and information over the course of the day. Kids do not wake up in the morning and read the New York Times cover to cover with a cup of coffee next to them or the Washington Post or wherever you are, the daily paper, nor at the end of the day do they tend to sit in front of Walter Cronkite or um, now Katie Couric telling the world what happens in terms of news. It's much more uh, a process that happens over the course of the day and in ways that are um, uh, it's kind of much less structured. So our uh, assessment of how many of the kids we were talking uh, to got information was a three-step process that Steve just referred to. The first step was really grazing, the notion of seeing lots and lots of headlines over the course of a day. It might be um, you know, in Twitter, seeing a bunch of headlines go by, or a My Yahoo page, or in Facebook, the news feeds. It might be um, the headlines going along the bottom of CNN, or, um, or you know, seeing a newsstand uh, in, in, uh, on the way to school. Um, 
and that's how most of the information gets to them, that they see these very short sound bites in, uh, in headline form. Um, for a subset of students, they uh, will seek more information on that topic, and so they take step two, which we call deep dive, the notion of saying, I would really like to learn more about this topic. It may be a serious topic. It may be about Britney Spears. It may be something in between. Um, but they seek to, in essence, to click on the hypertext link that they go beyond the headline to get the analysis or a blog post or commentary or something. And then uh, the third step is what we call a feedback loop. This is um, the fewest students out of um, any is saying, um, uh, the, um, uh, I want to speak back to this. I want to talk back. And I want to have some extent to which um, I can participate in this dialogue. And that might be posting it back on your Facebook page. It might be putting it on your MySpace page. It might be Twitter tweeting it. Um, it might be uh, putting it on a blog. So this is quite a different way, of course, of interacting with news and information than um, what a generation ago um, uh, kids were doing. I suspect that this will change yet again, but it's very much what the news industry is trying to figure out how they get in, uh, get in step with. Um, I should just add one tiny note. Sometimes the headlines are um, the equivalent of those um, free newspapers, Metro, uh, in, it's called in Boston, I think lots of other places. Um, these are uh, incredibly popular among young people. So it's not always in digital format. It's, uh, you know, it's sometimes in hard copy, but also in these very short formats. Would it be fair to say that, uh, that we might take away this, or that educators might take away from this, the importance of teaching the deep dive and the feedback loop? So that's a really, really good question. And I, you know, I defer to, to um, kind of real educators on this topic. My, my sense is that um, with each of these things, we should lean into it to the extent that we know that they're doing it and see what we think. Maybe try it out ourselves and see if it, um, in fact, describes a good way to learn. And where it's not, that we should um, try to teach them something else as a, as a different way to go. So in the context of law school, which is the one I know best as a teacher, I'm, and I'm also director of the Harvard Law Library. Um, one of the things that we worry about a fair amount is um, kids are um, thinking about legal research as just the equivalent of a Google search. So you're just typing in a few words that might bring up uh, a law or a case um, or commentary on it, which actually isn't a particularly good way um, to do legal research. So in those cases where um, it's something that we know is probably not a good way to do the research, but we have to give them a little more structure. We need to push back on it. Um, and uh, in other cases, you know, if, if it's something that we can run with and, and structure in a way that's going to be useful, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of all for learning um, and seeing if, seeing if that can work. But I, it's, it's a great question. I don't, I don't have my mind made up about it yet. The, the one thing that I, I think is crucial about um, uh, how we teach in these environments, though, is that we really step back and say, um, is the technology helping our pedagogical goals or helping us meet our pedagogical goals, or is it in the way? Um, and where it's helping that we run with it and use it where it's appropriate. Where it's getting in the way, which is very often, um, it doesn't belong there. Or we need, in fact, to um, uh, or, you know, uh, to, to find ways to, um, uh, to correct the behavior. And I think it's that kind of reorientation that I'm seeing among lots of great teachers that I've been talking to since this book came out. Thanks, John. Jenny, time-wise, we probably need to move right to, to the next, the last minute. Sure. Um, I was just going to make a comment that I think one of the things that's, that's really interesting about the book is that you talk not just about quality, but also about quantity of information. And I think the chapter on overload is really, really interesting and something that um, educators um, certainly need to try to grapple with. I mean, it's something I think all of us in our own lives are trying to figure out how to deal with this incredible amount of information. But it's also a particular struggle for young people and um, something that I think you know, will be a, a challenge um, that we can uh, engage in together. Um, which is another aspect of the book that I really, really like, that you often talk about digital natives as having to be a really critical part of the solution. Um, so the fourth myth, which you actually talked on a little bit earlier, was that digital natives are more prone to bullying and antisocial behavior. And you said that in your research you did find that, in fact, um, there is a real rise in this. Um, were there um, Things that you found that debunked this myth? 
So you know, this is one of the complicated ones. It depends a lot on how you define bullying. So you have to think, of course, there's a very wide range of you know clearly criminal, sexual predation kind of behavior that that's you know, associated with bullying. And then there's you know on the other end of the spectrum, teasing, right, and friendly um, interaction. And sometimes, of course, it might be sexual interaction that that kids, um, in fact, are um, are desiring. So um, there's a very big range. Um, I think the experience that we were writing about here is one that lots of us have had. Um, I don't think it's going on in this um, nicely set up chat room um, with 202 participants, but very often in online ins um, uh, environments, people say things that they wouldn't say face-to-face. -face. Um, uh, I think we've all had the experience of probably of being in an email, sort of heated email exchange, and you hit send um, too early. You then wish you could get it back. And um, in the old days of kind of local area networks, you might be able to recall a message, but now when it's gone, it's gone. Um, there is um, something that uh, psychologists talk about as the disinhibition effect, that um, people often um, uh, are less inhibited in these uh, digitally mediated environments than they would be if they were uh, face to face with someone. And you know, I think this is this is a, a, a real concern. Kids do um, do some really aggressive things to one another, and sometimes the impact of that uh, is extremely negative in terms of psychological impact on their on their colleagues. And of course, information in this environment is persistent. It's very hard to get rid of it. Um, and uh, it's often the case that, that information about somebody that is really negative floats up to the top of the Google search results and stays there for a long time. So um, the harm that people can cause to one another is very real, um, and it's very easy to do it um, in, uh, uh, you know, in, in these online environments. I guess I find it highly unlikely that kids are actually meaner to one another um, today than they were you know, a generation ago. Um, it's very hard to make that case one way or the other. I think one way to look at the bullying data, um, if you want to have a skeptical viewpoint, is to say, um, for the first time, bullying that used to happen in the schoolyard, which we couldn't see, now we can see in the online environment. So we can go into MySpace or Facebook or um, a chat environment and see it as it happens uh, as parents and teachers. We can also see it after the fact. So the point is it's recorded and then we can see it after it happens. So we don't have to have been there synchronously. We can see it asynchronously. So I think the, the um, I don't have data on this because I don't think it exists, but I think there is a possibility that this is just the same bullying that has been going on forever. It's just all of a sudden this online space we in fact can see it. Great. Well then I um I guess my my other question which um is related is um you know you look in the book at how this population um interacts differently with information institutions and each other. So are there positive things that you found about this population and the way that they engage with each other that may be different than previous generations or previous other populations. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think in the in the context of dealing with one another, um, there's no doubt that there is a very vibrant online uh, social environment that's integrated with offline social environments, and that kids are enjoying connecting with one another and that self-expression and social life in the digital world is something that kids love. You know, the, the flip side of that, of course, is if you've got a young person in your life who uh, is then offline for a short while, for a week or so on vacation, or uh, even for a short while, like an hour, and can't get access to their Facebook account, sometimes get very anxious because they feel disconnected from the social life. But I think in some respects, that's an indication that they're having fun in that, in that environment and it's something that they um, uh, that, that is attractive to them. Um, there's a wonderful study done by uh, a woman named Mimi Ito and her team um, uh, at a, uh, in California called the Digital Youth Study, and um, I would highly encourage you to take a look at that. It, it really looks at the, the informal kinds of learning and informal interaction uh, that youth um, are engaging in online and uh, assesses you know, the, the good and the bad, but really emphasizes, I think, the, the positive things going on uh, in, in terms of youth interaction. Great. Um, so I think because we are getting close to the hour that we should turn it over to um, participants who might have questions. I know that there's been a ton going on in the chat space um, and lots of reactions. Do people have specific questions they'd like to pose to John about any of these myths or 
um, other issues related to digital natives and how they use media and technology. And while we're, we're asking for that, I did catch one. I, I think I'm not alone. Many people were saying that it was very hard to follow the chat because there were so many people on it, and I agree. But John, one question that did come from the audience was, do the natives see older teachers as invaders? That's uh, a really good question. Um, uh, I don't. I don't think so um, overall, but it certainly is often a first um, a first reaction. So I, I take it that the question really is about um, if you go into an environment that's kind of a youth environment, is it um, uh, you know is it the case that kids then immediately leave, right? Um, and uh, you know. There is one way to see this, which is that youth are going into environments like MySpace because the sort of offline environments that um, we've created for them are um, are kind of insufficient, and so they're seeking spaces that are youth-only spaces. Um, and I think we have to be aware that that may be going on some of the time. I'm not that keen, though, on setting up environments where it's youth-only without any structured, appropriate um, adult involvement teachers, social workers, and others. Um, so I guess I'm, uh, I'd be concerned if that were kind of our overall reaction. But the, the, um, the other piece of it is if, in fact, um, there's no way for adults to participate in the same uh, environments, I think it's very hard for us to give um, constructive, common sense feedback to uh, to young people. And I think that's a key part of this uh, this equation. There was a um, bit on the chat that went by where uh, one person was saying that they're worried about the gulf that's growing between uh, adults and kids. And um, I think you know there, there's a real worry here. Um, but I think that if you let young people be your guides from time to time, let them show you into these environments, um, more often than not, they are eager to show people. And they may show you not their profile, but their friend's profile. And they may show you something that happened to somebody else because um, they may not want to personalize it. But I actually think that there is um, a lot of promise uh, that uh, young people will um, like to be the teachers to some extent. And obviously, we have to open ourselves up to that. John, uh, Chris asks, um, what are, is your suggested solution to updating copyright laws? Oh man, um, that's a good one. So you know, I, I would go for the gold, um, which is a which is a fairly dramatic um, thing for for digital um, um, materials. I would adopt an alternative copyright um, system or an alternative compensation system. There's a book that my uh, colleague at Harvard Law School, Terry Fisher, wrote, which in the called Promises to Keep. And in Chapter 6, he makes a proposal for uh, this kind of alternative compensation system. There are two versions of it. One is a state-mandated one. Another is um, one that would run on a, a cooperative basis. But the basic idea would be for um, music and movies uh, in particular, what we would do is to say that the regular copyright doesn't apply, um, that you do have to pay. Um, you pay either through a tax in the um, uh, state-mandated uh, approach or through uh, broadband fees, um, it's probably about $5 a month. And the point would be at the end of um, a period, either the state or the private party would collect um, fees based on uh, count, uh, based on usage of uh, music and movies, and then we would pay pro rata out to the artists um, for how much it was enjoyed. Um, this would take away the problem that um, uh, artists aren't getting paid for uh, enjoyment by young people. It would also encourage an environment in which young people can remix um, freely and, in fact, um, be encouraged to, to learn in that way. This is a very dramatic um, uh, copyright reform. There are lots of lesser ones, but uh, we don't have time to go into all of them. Uh, this kind of approach was actually brought before the French legislature um, uh, last year. There are a bunch of other countries considering it. Um, I think it's a long time before the United States does anything this dramatic. Um, but if I had my way and could wave a magic wand, I would go to such a such a different system. John Karniak asks, is the scan and click browsing affecting students' abilities to read longer passages carefully? Is traditional text-based literacy being affected here? Uh, you know, this is one that I don't I don't honestly know the answer to it. It is clearly the case that young people are less likely to read um, a sustained argument in the form of a book. Um, I think most 
most data show this. There are some studies that show the contrary, but I, I, I guess I, I inclined to believe that, that it's the case that they are reading less in long book form. Um, it's not the case that they won't read long format articles in magazines um, from what I've seen. Um, so I don't know that it's exactly the, um, the, the sort of standard ADD definition. Um, I guess my instinct on it from the perspective of a teacher would be to say, okay, the data isn't great. We're not totally positive on what's going on here. We should encourage kids to use longer format um, uh, sources. And I think you know, one of the things I'm eager to, um, uh, to understand better is you know, why is it the case that kids will clearly watch a couple hour movie still, right? They still will play World of Warcraft for hours and hours and hours. Um, what is it about what's happening in those environments that sustains their attention um, that we might not be seeing in other ways? And is there a way to um, to, to try to bring that back? So I, I think that's a, a really good a really good question and, and a challenge for um, for all of us. I think a simple way to do it, you know, judging again from our research, was if you assign them to cite to a book um, and then you know challenge them on what they put in. Uh, in the paper, then uh, you know at least they they will be encouraged to do that, and maybe they'll end up loving it. I guess I don't inherently think that kids um, at, born at this point in history are going to enjoy books less. They certainly love J.K. Rowling, for instance. I think that's a great example. Uh, Jenny, do we have time for one more question? Um, sure. Yeah, of course. Uh, a number of people have mentioned the use of portable devices in the classroom. John, do you have a feeling about this? As you look at your own children, have you thought about whether or not you want them to be able to bring in an iPhone or an iPod Touch? That's a great question. I've never, uh, I've never actually thought about it in that particular way. Um, uh, you know, there's a there's a lively debate in many schools about whether or not you should have um, internet access of any sort. So it could be a cell phone, it could be a PDA, it could be a, a laptop. Um, the experience that we had at Harvard Law School was um, we spent this 10 years ago, spent millions of dollars to rewire all of our classrooms, really did a beautiful job of it. And then at the next faculty meeting, I was a student at the time, not a, not a member of the faculty, the, um, the vote was taken to turn off the Internet access because the faculty said, well, why do we actually want this? We wired this up, but I don't want it during the class um, at this point. We, um, and I think this has taken place in school after school. Um, uh, around the country, we now have the same exact debate with Wi-Fi. Um, we've put in all these wireless routers, and yet lots of teachers don't want wireless in the classroom at that time. Um, and yet it's hard to keep it out because kids can um, use all manner of private services to get it in. Um, my feeling generally is, uh, again, to go back to this concept that we should ask the question first. What are our pedagogical goals? Forget the fact that technology is involved and then say, can the technology help us achieve those goals? Is the technology something that's helping, or is it hindering um, uh, this work? And my sense is in some classrooms, the technology helps enormously. It's a really cool way for young people to get access to different kinds of information. It's a really great way for kids to remake uh, things and to learn in, in creative ways. And then there are instances where we really shouldn't have technology. The laptop should be down. A really you know, clear example in the law school world is um, if you have a great Socratic teacher at the front of the room who basically says somebody stand and state the facts of the case and then you get into um, a debate with them uh, in the old school way, that's a great way to teach and technology doesn't necessarily have, have uh, a place there. So um, I guess I would go back to you know, what kind of a classroom are we talking about? Is there a way that you could use the iPhone that in fact is going to uh, you know, enhance um, the, the experience, and if the answer is yes, then fine, keep it in. If not, I would uh, I would disallow it. Well, I think that's a good, good note to wrap up on. <laughs> um, I, I did want to point out that um, the book is actually part of a much larger project, and so in addition to the book, there is a wiki and a blog and a link to a whole bunch of videos that were created by digital natives in response to the book. So I strongly encourage you all um, to check out all the links on this slide here. Um, again, this will be part of your recording. Um, and and learn about the larger project. And, and the wiki and the blogs give you a way to um, remain in conversation with John about these issues. I also wanted to make folks aware that um, Steve is going to be interviewing two of the Harvard students who worked on this project.
project with John um, on Thursday, March 5th. Uh, at 8 p.m. as part of his Future of Education webinar series. So I hope that those of you who um, are interested in exploring these issues further and doing so from the perspective of digital natives will join Steve for that event. Um, I wanted to let folks know that we have three more webinars coming up on the PBS Teachers Live and Classroom 2.0 series. Uh, our next webinar on March 18th is called Remixing Shakespeare for 21st Century Students, and we're going to have a bunch of experts uh, from the Folger and some really uh, innovative teachers sharing what they're doing with students to bring Shakespeare to life um, in, in this day and age. Um, on April 7th, we're going to have a webinar focused on on Earth Day and um, a very popular kids program called CyberChase and we're going to be looking at a whole bunch of new resources from them and talking with some math education experts about how to use technology to enhance elementary math education. And then in May we're going to be talking with the folks from Jean-Michel Cousteau Ocean Adventures about um, environmental science and place-based education and how to use media and technology to enhance those. Um, so I hope you'll join us for all of those. Um, I, just a quick plug for our site. Um, if you're not familiar with PBS Teachers, we have thousands of free standard-based resources. So we hope that you'll go and visit us and look through the subject area pages and the media literacy resources and familiarize yourself with our collection. Um, we work you know, with high, high quality teachers and curriculum developers to create all of these and we distribute them to you for free. So please take advantage. Um, I also wanted to point out that we have some very cute new activity packs, which are widgets that um, contain collections of PBS resources and classroom activities organized around specific themes. So one you might want to check out in March, because it's Women's History Month, is a widget focused on women's rights then and now. But we have a, a large collection um, spanning social studies, science, and other topics. So um, you can come to the site if you like it. You can click on the Grab It button on the lower right corner and you can embed it right on your own web page or social networking site, um, which is a great way to share it with other people. Uh, we also have a social network at PBS Teachers. Um, I, in our question earlier, it looked like a lot of folks said that they're members of Facebook. We hope that you'll also check out PBS Teachers Connect, which is designed for teachers to connect with each other around using media and technology to improve education. And there's a discussion set up in there right now about tonight's webinar. So if you'd like to continue the conversation, please um, sign in and, and chat in that space about um, what you learned tonight. And, um, and, and about a whole slew of other issues. Of course, Steve is also um, the proud creator and owner of his own social network, Classroom 2.0, and we strongly encourage you to visit that and join that social network as well. Um, and as I said earlier in the program, links to the archives from these events um, will be on both of our sites. So please visit us and, and contribute to the communities. Um, before we go, I, I can't. Um, go without thanking Illuminate for hosting the event this evening. We certainly couldn't have done it without them, and we're very, very thankful for their generous support. And now, um, last but not least, Steve is putting up a survey. So we would really appreciate if before you log off tonight, you could um, answer these questions quickly and let us know what you thought about um, tonight's event um, so that we can use this information to make each event a little bit better than the last. So thank you so much for joining us. John, it was a, a huge pleasure. Um, we really, really appreciated having you here. I hope everyone had a great night. This all clap for John. Thank you so much, Jenny and Steve and everyone else. Sorry, John, I talked over you, but thank you for being here. Thanks so much. Take care. Thanks, good night.
Maria, Elena, if you have a question, can you put it in the chat window, please? Gina, yeah, you can just quit. <laughs>